0: right, at this time, I want to go ahead and dismiss all kids ages 3 through 9. All kids ages 3 through 9, you are dismissed to go with Miss Liz into the back. Those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Solomon, uh, not Solomon, 1 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, The last two weeks, we dealt more of a topical issue dealing with some of the things that we deal with um, that that come up in this particular chapter and dealing with, you know, um, God's command to wipe out the Amalekites. And so we spent the last two weeks on that. Um, So we're not going to deal with that this week. And so if you have questions about that, if that's something that in this passage you're wondering about that, I would encourage you to go to the podcast and uh, just go back and listen to those sermons Um, And hopefully they may find you may find them helpful or feel free to talk to me But we're not going to deal with that this week because I felt like we've already dealt with it We are going to be looking at the overall thrust of the passage And what the passage is actually really talking about here this morning And so we're going to cover all of chapter 15 And so let us begin by simply reading 1st Samuel chapter 15 uh, in its entirety Hear now the word of the Lord And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted that Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way in which when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek. And devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim. Two hundred thousand men on foot and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came into the city of Amalek and lay in it wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed us kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah to as far as Sur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all that the people with the edge of the sword... But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthlessly devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel arose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down into Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And to the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak! And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes and you do not. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you, the, you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of, the, of Amalek, and I devoted the Am- Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction just sacrifice to the Lord, your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice? As, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is is the is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has also rejected you from being king saul said to samuel i have sinned for i have transgressed the commandment of the lord and your words because i feared the people and obeyed their voice now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that i may bow before the lord and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. And Saul seized the skirt of his robe and he tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And has given it into a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret For he is not a man that he should have regret. And he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, your sword has made women childless. So shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Ramah. And Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you are a personal God who speaks to us. You're transcendent and you're beyond our capacity to understand, but yet you, in your grace and your mercy, you seek to make yourself known to us. That is simply an act of your wonder, of your grace, and of your mercy. So, Father, as you reveal yourself to us, give us eyes that we might see, that it would penetrate not only our understanding and our mind, but from our mind, it would renew our thinking, it would move into our hearts. And it would change our very affections for you, for your people. And in changing our affections, it would move throughout our body to our hands and to our feet and to our tongues. And so that in all of life, we may glorify you and submit and bow ourselves before you as our Lord and God. To bring you glory as your grace works in us, making us like Christ. We pray this in Jesus name. Let me give you a completely impure hypothetical scenario, right? Something that, of course, I would never, ever actually do in all of my years of marriage. But let's say I was this type of person to do what I'm about to describe. Let's say Mariana sent me to the grocery store to buy an item. Let's just, we're, we're, we'll just say chocolate chips, right? Because she is making... Chocolate chip cookies for the boys. And so she has sent me to go get the ingredients for chocolate chips. And so I have a list, a very defined list of things that I need to get. And I'm trying to help her out. It's not that she necessarily needs me. She could certainly do them himself. But it's a way for me to be involved within the process of making these cookies for our children. And so she sends me out with a list of things to get to do for her that she needs to be able to make these cookies, right? And so one of these ingredients is chocolate chips. But as I go into the store, I am let loose upon a sea of options, right? And so I see all the things before us, and I'm looking at the sizes. And not only that, I'm a little hungry myself. And I decide as I look at these chocolate chip cookies, you know what might be even better than chocolate chips? Peanut butter chips. Now, this is where you know this is an actual hypothetical because I would never do that, right? I would chocolate all the way. Please don't put peanut butter in your cookies. That's just not right. But be that as it may, we're, we're getting back to the story here. And so I come back with these chips and say, look at what I have done for you. You're going to be amazed because I have taken your idea and I have made it better. Let me tell you what I've done. You sent me for chocolate chips, but look what I got instead. I got peanut butter chips. Now, what am I expecting in this moment? Oh, look at you. Look at your inventiveness. Now, why would I did, did I do this? It's because in my own heart, I wanted peanut butter in that moment. And so I decided this would be better not only for me, but for everybody else. But as I hand these to my wife, my wife says, hold on. I said to get chocolate chips. Yes, but wouldn't peanut butter be so much better? No, it wouldn't, because coming over to our house for these cookies is Nate, and Nate has a peanut allergy. He won't be able to eat these cookies that you think are so great. I knew what I was doing. There's a very specific reason I'm making chocolate chip cookies and not a different dessert. There's a reason I didn't say, get what you want. I asked you to get chocolate chip cookies. And so I say, and I go back to the grocery store because I'm that helpful, right? And so I go back to the grocery stores and I'm looking, I'm still not feeling the chocolate chips, right? So I think, I know, this is what is even better. Now, this is actually something that I might actually choose raisins let's do oatmeal raisin cookies right I hear that amen <laughs> so we we so I bring these back oh you sent me but I really nailed it this time look what I got look at these raisins can you just picture the the oatmeal cookies just melting in your mouth at this point she's trying to restrain herself from blundering me with one of the saucepans, right because she says, No, this isn't a good thing. Your oldest son will not eat oatmeal cookies. There's a reason I wanted you to get chocolate chip cookies. Will you please? And you know what? You're not going back to the grocery store, Bill. Just stay here, just go to your seat, watch a soccer game, and just please stop trying to help me, right? now what is going on behind this there's two things going on one of the things that's going on with this story is one I'm actually trying to choose to get what I want rather than what the other person has told me to get and what is inherent behind that ultimately I don't trust mariana to have given me what i think we actually should need but behind is going on there is an actual rupture in the relationship i'm thinking i know what's best i'm thinking i know what would be best for our family and what she really should be doing and what is in, in implicit though certainly not something i would ever say out loud least i die is that i don't trust your opinion. I don't trust that what you're doing is ultimately good within there. We can make this as a simple, you're kind of silly though, but behind that is ultimately a rupture of trust. It is ultimately a (laughs) relational problem that is taking place. And that's why obedience really becomes so important. At the very heart of it, Is not the sense in which God is this abstract judge trying to look upon us as this person to say, did you follow the rules? He's not some kind of old school Catholic teacher that is waiting for you to get out of line so I can bang you on the wrist with a ruler. Did you follow the instructions? No. But rather a God who is calling us into relationship with himself. The key function for all relationships is trust. And one of the most uncomfortable ways to diagnose our trust is ultimately obedience. Are we actually obeying? You see, we can give all kinds of lip service, but the test of our obedience in many ways is like the rectal thermometer. It's uncomfortable, but frankly, it gives the best measurement. I know that's a little bit of a graphic image. (laughs) Hope you had coffee. It's an extreme diagnosis within there. And that's why obedience is so important and why God takes obedience so importantly. It means what obedience ultimately is doing is that it is saying that I trust God enough to follow him. I trust and believe that he is God. I am not. I need him. He does not need me. It's a matter of trust. Now, one of the things that we need to also probably discuss here on the outset is this is somewhat of an insider discussion, so to speak. It's important for us to remember that to enter into this relationship... God isn't saying, let's see if you obey me first and then I'll decide if I'm going to save you or not. We enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace, because of grace alone, right? But as he has saved us completely through his power, he saved us just as he saved the people of Israel, pulling them out of Egypt through his power as a complete initiation of his grace, what does he then do? Well, he is forming them to be his people, to be in relationship with him. So he forms within them a covenant, the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that expresses itself in the law, in Leviticus, right? And in Deuteronomy, The purpose isn't to say, well, let me just see what you guys can do. But the purpose is actual relationship for them to be his people, to be in a relationship with him. And so he begins to far more take obedience quite quite a bit more seriously with them as they enter into that covenant relationship. Right? Why? Because the relationship matters. The relationship matters. And while we understand that we enter into this relationship by grace, we also have to say, you know, if this is not something you're at all concerned about, if you couldn't care less and you're flipping about whether you obey Christ or not, you do have to ask yourself, have you really entered into that relationship with him by grace? As we move in, it's also important for us to understand this. A lot of times, one of the questions we want to ask of this is, does this mean Saul is no longer saved? Is he in any kind of relationship with God? And I don't believe that, even though that's a question we want to ask of this, I don't believe that's the question it's answering, right? What this is saying is Saul is no longer going to be king. There is no longer a leadership position for Saul. Now whether or not he he is a what we would call a believer well i don't think the scripture really answers it at least not in this text but this is a discussion and it's important for us to understand we may be believers and experience God's judgment and that may mean there's certain things and certain consequences that may we may have to endure Sin always has consequences. So, for example, by God's grace, I am a believer. But there are certainly sins that I could commit that would disqualify me as a pastor. Now, by God's grace, he could still restore me. I could be in perfectly restored fellowship, completely forgiven sins, right? but still not necessarily be able to come back to the pastorate. Now, so that's important for us to kind of set up on the foundation for the outset. It's also important for us to remember to look back, because it's been a few weeks, this isn't Saul's first offense. He's already shown that he, a pattern of not following the the voice of the Lord. Uh, Once again, in Gilgal, the place where he ends up here, he decides that he is going to offer, in direct violation to what God had told him to, he is going to offer the sacrifice rather than wait for Samuel. Now, in chapter 13, what we saw is Samuel... You're no longer going to have an eternal, perpetual dynasty. He didn't remove the kingship from him in chapter 13, but he did say... Your, your perpetual dynasty has come to an end. That's no longer going to be the case. Your sons is not going to continue on as king. Now here, what we see is now God is saying, you're no longer going to be my king. Not only is it no longer just going to be a perpetual dynasty that has stopped, but I am removing you as leader of my people. Because, quite frankly... You've shown yourself unwilling to be obedient. And that's one of the big things that's going on here, right? The people wanted a king to be like all the nations. The king of Israel wasn't to be a king like all the nations, but to rather recognize that God is king. So if you have a king who's not willing to obey the true king, there's a sense in which there's a power grab on display. Who's going to be the real king over Israel? And God is saying, I'm not going to share my power. I'm not going to share my kingship with you, Saul. Now, so let's kind of look at this. What do we see? God, in the first four verses, makes it very clear that what Saul is to do is to fight and destroy this enemy. Enemy. Uh, the Amalekites, and we already discussed their backstory and their history in previous sermons. Now, there's a couple of things that's important to note here, right? One of the first things is, what is the first thing he says to Saul? First off, I'm the one who made you king. You are king, and you are in your position, not because of what you've done, but because I've put you in that position. And the second thing, who does he refer himself as? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabbat, the Lord of armies. God doesn't need Saul or Israel's help to defeat the Amalekites. This is about obedience. What we have seen is God is quite capable to do this on his own. We saw this in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. Frankly, we saw this earlier on in the book of 1 Samuel when the ark was t- taken prisoner by the Philistines. God showed quite clearly he is able to punish and wipe out a people apart from any involvement with, his, with Israel or Saul. God does not need Saul. He is not sitting there saying, Ooh, I've got to have this done. How can I get this done? Saul, do you think you can handle it? Because I really need that. This is important. Do you think you can do this? Okay, I'll let you do this. Boy, man, you're helping me out, Saul. No, that's not what's going on here. God doesn't need Saul. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh Sabbat, Lord of Angel Armies. He is the Lord of Hosts. And it says and he makes it extraordinarily clear. Clear in a way that is uncomfortable for us you are not to spare or keep for yourself anything. This isn't some sort of imperial land grab where, hey, I think you guys could use some more goats and sheep. I would like a little bit better sacrifices, so let's go attack that, people. No, this is about judgment and only judgment that has taken place. And so there's no ambiguity. And so if we pull up the map here that, that, that we have, what we see is... Uh, um, right there, uh, that sea that in the middle, that's the Dead Sea. And so he goes down from where he is in, in Gebeah, and he goes down to um, that uh, uh, Talam, right there, and he attacks. And the, the Amalekites are somewhat of a, uh, they're semi-nomadic, but that's the area in which they're in. And he attacks them, and we don't 100% know where um, Havilah is, but uh, this map, at least, estimates it's on that side of the, of the Jordan Valley. And then, sure, that's moving on into Egypt. And so you can see this is a very thorough defeat that he does. Now, he stops off before, and he talks to the Kenites. Now, who are the Kenites? Just a little bit of a dig- digression. The Kenites were the ancestors of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And so they had kind of followed uh, the people of Israel into this area, and they were metal workers. They were metalsmiths within that. And so they tell them, you've always been good to us, so get out. And so they do. So they defeat them. He takes, instead of wiping everything out, what they decide to do is they take the king and the best of the fats of the sheep and the goats. And so in other words, they look in and say, you know what? It sure seems like a shame to destroy this really nice goat because, man, that looks like that's some good lamb chops here, right? Right? why don't we just keep this and we'll offer it as a sacrifice? Yeah, I get to eat this and God gives a sacrifice. Surely God will like that better. I know I do. It makes sense to me. Let's do this. I know it says to devote everything to destruction, but wouldn't it be great if we kept Agag as this little slave king to remind everybody how big we are? And we got this slave. Oh, who is that slave? Oh, that guy used to be a king. Yeah, I'm that, I'm that big. I'm that kind of. Uh, it's, I believe, what my son likes to call flexing on people. And so this, it's a way of flexing on people, right? <laughs> my son's doing. Stop. Just stop, just stop, just stop. And so he comes, after this defeat, he goes back up. And if you pull the, the map back up, He goes back up to Caramel. Now, that's not Mount Caramel, um, but that is Caramel. And so he goes up and he erects, and this is interesting and actually quite telling, he erects for himself a monument. Not to Yahweh, but to himself for his great defeat. And then he goes up all the way to Gilgal. And so Samuel, the Lord tells Samuel, look, this is it. This is the last time. I'm removing the kingdom from him. Samuel is upset. And so he goes out trying to find Saul. And he finds out that he's gone all the way from the south. All the way up. Parading all of this spoil. Parading this king. All the way up. All the way to Gilgal. And that's where he finds them. And so what do we see within this? The, the kept what they wanted. This wasn't about a kindness. This wasn't about, boy, this seems kind of harsh. They had no problem destroying that which was weak in the things that they didn't want. This was pure and utter selfishness. But notice what happens when Samuel confronts Saul. Saul, before he even says, he said, look, look what I did. I did exactly what you asked for. I mean, it's like a politician and a teenager all wrapped in one, right? So much gaslighting that's taking place there. And so Samuel confronts him and he says, no, don't you understand you're changing what God has and you're trying to use sacrifice." as a justification for you to not be obedient. And what he says is that obedience is better than sacrifice. In other words, Saul, stop thinking you know better than God. And because, as I said, when, he's, when we try to elevate sacrifice of obedience, what we're really trying to do, what Saul was really trying to do was a very poor way of trying to manipulate God. Let me manipulate God. Surely, we, God doesn't really know what's best. This is the lie of Satan that goes all the way back to the garden. When Satan says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any of the tree? What is the subtle temptation of Satan in that conversation? You can't trust that God knows what's best for you. You can't trust God. God is going to be holding back on you. What is Saul and the people actually doing here? They're saying, you know what? We really can't trust God to know what is best for us and ultimately for him. We, if we do this this way, we get our heart's desire and God gets a better sacrifice. He gets a grander worship service. Surely that's a win-win, right? It goes back to the illustration I began with, with me going to the grocery store. Surely I know what will make better, more tasty cookies. It's a win-win. Does God really trust what is best for us? It's kind of like the speed limit, right? We look at the speed limit as just, you know, that's great that we have speed limits because people are kind of crazy out on the road. There needs to be speed limits for every other person, but I'm a really great driver. (laughs) I am a really good driver, and so even though I know this is the speed limit, you know what? I'm good enough that, I can choose to ignore this, and I will be a better driver, and ultimately, I'm running late. And so, you know what? I don't really have to abide by that. Now, this 16-year-old teenager, he needs to abide by that, but not me because I know better. No amens on that one, I noticed. (laughs) Nobody wants to, okay, all right. I ultimately say, I am more capable. And our culture in the United States, we're filled with this. We look at examples. For example, God is trying to hold back for our happiness. And therefore, when he says sex is for a man and woman who have committed into the covenant of marriage, we look and say, "Uh, you know what? That's pretty restrictive. I'm not sure I could. Does God really understand the the way and the chemicals work in the human body, does he really understand the way things work in our culture? That's pretty restrictive. If we just open that up, guess what? Not only will I get to do what I want to do, but more people will be willing to come to church. So God gets a bigger church, more people will be interested in him, and I get to have sex outside of marriage. That's a win-win. God says that we are to be a people of love, loving our enemies, even forgiving them. But doggone it, doesn't he know how dangerous those politicians are? Doesn't he know how dangerous this person is? Surely if I get to hate him and post nasty things about them on social media, God will get the glory. If God wants me to just be so nice... To love my enemies and do things like, you know, turn the other cheek. Doesn't he know that that's how we're going to lose the culture war? About being a person of integrity in the workplace. Yeah, I know that's really important. But, you know, in my industry and where I work, I have to cut some corners. I got to be a little bit manipulative. I got to, you know what? I got to really get in people's faces. I got to get downright nasty with people. I know it's not great, but you know what? By being able to do this, I'm able to provide a really safe, stable environment at home for my family with all the money I make. And look at how much more I'm able to give into the offering at church. What is the core behind all of that is ultimately two things. It's we want what we want more than we trust God. We're saying that we know how to be happy. We know what's best for our lives. God does not. You see this within there is a break of relationship. Even in the leadership books, Patrick Laconi, the five dysfunctions of the team was the very first dysfunction of any team the foundation for any kind of a teamwork it's trust we have to trust we can see that in our business models but we don't understand this in the most foundational relationship we need now it's also you may be saying well what about legalism right I mean, many of us have come in and like, hey, you know, we've been infected and infested with legalism. We've had all these people who say, hey, you just need to obey. And they've made it nothing more than obedience. But you know what? That is the ultimate form of not obeying God, really, because that is the ultimate form of trying to manipulate God by saying we will make him love us with our actions. We will control the situation. We will trust in ourselves, not in ultimate God. Last thing we'd also have to understand and remember that part of the reason we struggle so much with this is we live in a place where we don't trust our institutions. We don't trust our authority. But why is that? It's because so often institutions and authority rather than even in the church, rather than being obedience and living in the light, they viewed their self-perpetuation and their Glory and their reputation to trump obedience and dealing with scandals and things like that. And what is the fruit of that? Mistrust. What are they ultimately saying? We know more than God. God needs us to fulfill his mission. And in the United States, one of the things that's so difficult with this conversation is we have no shortages of souls that will go around and tell us that our partial obedience is actual full obedience. And it's so easy for us that when we do have Samuels in our lives or in our churches, guess what? That becomes uncomfortable, and we can go to another church. We can go to another location. There's two important guardrails. Two important guardrails that can help us stay on the path of obedience. Because we need to understand, all of us struggle with this. I don't care who, if you think you don't struggle with this, mm, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. I struggle with obedience. I struggle in this, no doubt about it. But what are these guardrails within there? The first Guardrail is the importance of a seeing and savoring Jesus. Saul's eyes are constantly on himself, his insecurities of who he is. He is never fixated on God. <laughs> Trying to manipulate God, yes. But never fixated on God. And that's why when you see Saul says, he has this almost kind of bizarre um, in, the, in, in the poetry where he talks about obedience being uh, better Than Sacrifice, he talks about the rebellion being like di- divination. What is he saying there? When what, what he's trying to do by elevating sacrifice of obedience, just like divi- divination, you're trying to control God. You're trying to manipulate God. Why is he trying to do that? Because his eyes are actually fixed on himself. Just as I said a few weeks ago, he's wanting to bring God into his story rather than submitting himself to God's story. What is the answer to that? We fix our eyes on Jesus, on who he is, what he has done for us, his sufficiency, his love for us. In my own life, some of the most powerful times of liberation from sin. has been when I've been able to look at it and say, you know what, I don't need that thought, I don't need that fantasy, I don't need this, why? Because what I have in Jesus is enough. It's better. It turns my heart and my affections towards what I'm looking at to what I have in Christ that encourages me to trust in Him, not in the fleeting pleasures of the moment. The second thing is this, we need Samuels in our life who are telling us the truth. People who love us enough to tell us the truth. That comes both from the teaching we absorb, in biblical teaching, but also the friendships in our place. And it's easy for us to find friends who are Saul's, who will say, well, you know what? What you did was just fine. Don't let anybody else say so. Anything else. You deserve to get what you want. Now, sometimes we need friends who help remind us of the grace, not sometimes, always we need people who remind us of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, that God loves us. We also need people who challenge us. Out of that love for us to challenge us to find our identity and hope in Christ. The issue with Saul, however, is he wouldn't listen to Samuel. All the way through, what you see is a false repentance. You see, it's easy for us to look at this and ask, why is God being so hard on Saul? I mean, after all, this David, this one who he says is one who is better than him, he does some pretty nasty stuff that we're going to get into. Why why is God so, it seems like, so much harder on Saul than David? The answer is, Is in the responses. God confronts both of them. For their sin. And both of them have consequences. For their sin. But Where's the big difference? The difference is in their response. Saul. In his quote unquote forgiveness. Is constantly manipulative. He's never fully owning up. To saying. I messed up. This was on me. Even in the most. Kind of poignant part of his of his saying, "I have sinned." He still kind of throws the people under the bus. He says, "Well, I have sinned because I listened to the people. They're the ones who did it." And I was just too scared of them. Versus David, he deals with it and says, "Against you and you alone have I sinned." You see a heart of true repentance that characterizes David. Both of them sin. And this is important. I don't care how energized, I don't care how much you leave here today saying, you know what, I've got to take obedience seriously. Guess what? You're still going to need to know what to do with repentance because as no matter, in this world until you're glorified, you're going to, you're going to be struggling with this. Now by God's grace, In his work of mercy, he is making us more like Christ. You're not going to reach full uh, sanctification in this life. The good news is we have a God who meets us with forgiveness. We have to be willing to deal with our sin for that relationship to be able to move forward. Now, by relationship, I'm not saying that there's any, I'm not talking about our salvific relationship, but for that fellowship that we have, that intimacy, that abiding with God, right? And that's important because as we take this full circle, what we see within this, as much as this may seem harsh, or abstract, what this is, is about life with a personal God. Obedience isn't for God, it's for us. It's not for God, it's for us. God isn't looking down upon us saying, oh, I wish, there's so much I wish I could do, but I can't get these people at Grace Covenant Church to just get their act together. Oh man, I need them to step up. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. We need him. He didn't need Saul to take care of the Amalekites. Saul needed God to be a wise and just king. To be the king that could truly lead his people well. To lead the people in a way that placed their faith totally, utterly in Yahweh rather than in a human king Saul needed obedience to Yahweh. It was a kindness of God within there. And there's something that's in there that actually really kind of highlights that, this, although it seems very confusing. In the ESV, the word is translated regrets. If you have looked at an old King James version, it may have translated repent. It's in verse 11 it's actually in three different places verse 11 29 and 35 where god says first he says this and it's somewhat confusing for i regret that i have made saul king wait a minute Does god did god not know what was going on here and then later on in samuel's conversation with saul he says something that seems contradictory God is not like a man that he should regret. Same word. And then again in verse 35, it kind of echoes what was in verse 11, and God regretted making Saul king. So what's going on here? On the surface level, level, this would seem like this is contradictory, but what it really is is it is bringing forth some of the most wonderful and glorious attributes of God's character that we can find. You see, when he talks in verse 29, and there's different context within there, what God is saying is in the judgment that he's doing, Saul, don't think that, you know, you just caught God on a bad day. You know what? There's sometimes, as a, as a human parent, if I'm being honest and telling on myself, there's some days where if I, my kids catch me on a wrong day, you know what? I can probably be harsher than I was would be with them on perhaps a day when I was in a better mood. Why? Because I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect in my judgment. I'm not perfect in who I am. I am what you theologians would call mutable. I am changeable. All of the universe is really changeable. We all are changing. You are not the same person you were 5, 10, 15 years ago. The universe itself is changing, is constantly in flux. But God, who created all things, he is what is called immutable. He is unchanging. He is already perfectly perfect. He cannot become more perfect than he already is. And he will never become less perfect than he already is. And he is completely unchanging in his character. Now, this is a glorious and wonderful truth of us as Christianity. We can always know who our God is. He is completely, utterly unchanging. And so the promises He has for us will always be the same. The salvation that He offers us, we know is secure and will not change. He is unchanging. And so when He says to us that we can be saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace, we can take that to the bank. That will be the same yesterday, today, and forever It is always going to be there. Who he is and his relationship to us will not change by grace. It's not like a philosophy that will expand or evolve or political theory that will look back in 10 years later and say, ooh, that was kind of dumb. We know a whole lot more now. He is unchanging in who he is. He is immutable. And he confesses that. He's not wishy-washy. But, he's, what about verse 11 and 35? Why does God say that he regretted? Now, the first thing is important for us to understand, this is a little bit of a difficult word to translate in English. But what it is, is ultimately saying is, is a change in the relationship. It is a change in the function of the way he is interacting with Saul. This actually word is, it can be used of a person who who repents. In the Old Testament, one who, for example, is doing sin and repents. They regret their sin. They relent from their sin. They repent from their sin. Uh, All these different words. But what it's basically saying is, we were moving in this direction. We thought this was good. We have now seen that this is bad, and we are fundamentally changing our attitude towards that activity, that event. So it can be used of a person, but it is often used of God. And specifically when it's used of God, most of the time what it's saying is God is relenting from the wrath and the destruction and judgment that he was planning on doing. A famous example of this is in the book of Jonah. And Jonah, what it says is that when the people of Nineveh, um, they, they repented and sat cloth and ashes, God, you could put You could put the word repented or relented, but of the wrath of the judgment he was going to bring. Now, is that in any way saying the same way when we say we regret, we we bring in our own frailty and our fallenness within that, as saying we were wrong in what we were doing. That is not what God is saying. He's not saying, well, I was wrong to do this. What he's saying in this that he regretted is there's indication of some fundamental change. Whereas Saul was king and he had that blessing as king, God is now saying he is no longer going to be king. Just as with the people of Nineveh, he was no longer going to bring, in response to their judgment, to their sin, going to bring judgment upon them. In response to Saul's sin, he is no longer going to be king. Now, does this mean that God is saying, boy, I wish I had not done that. No, he knew exactly what he was doing when he was doing it with Saul. Does this mean that he, um, um, that, that he uh, didn't know this was going to happen? No, he knew exactly what this was going to happen. Let me give you a very imperfect analogy. Me as a dad, right, and I watch and I'm talking to my sons about doing something and they're doing something that I've told them and repeatedly told them not to do. Because I know that in doing it, it's going to hurt them. And I watch them do it. And so finally, I have to let the best thing for them is to let them experience the consequences. Now, as I watch them do this, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly what's going to happen. And I know the consequences. And when it happens, that doesn't mean I rejoice or I'm happy or I'm, I'm, I'm uninvolved emotionally it hurts me that my children experiences the consequences of that. I don't like it. Does that mean that I wish it had not happened? I wish it hadn't happened in that I wish they had made better decisions, yes. But ultimately, I knew that was what was best for the situation. Imperfect, very imperfect, because God is completely utter. But What we see within this is God is involved, though he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew Saul's line of disobedience. He knew that he would ultimately bring in David as king. Despite all of this, God is not distant and impersonal within this. He's not emotional like we are emotional And the standpoint of sometimes we are controlled by our emotions. God is never controlled by his emotions. He is deliberate and has complete control over them. That is called impassibility. But he's not impersonal within this. Now, you might say, well, that's a lot of really interesting theology. So what? So what is this? God is not like some distant judge, ruling, but rather he is the God who is forming his people and is intimately involved, and he gives us our obedience to teach us to trust him. Why? Because he seeks intimacy with us. Abiding with him is the ultimate goal. And so we bring all this together in the act that we do today in communion. Because in the act of communion, we really have all of this theology bound up in one. We take of this theology, we take of this act of worship, and we recognize God is unchanging. Our salvation was secured for us by Jesus Christ, by the fact that he gave his body and his blood for us. That is the means by which we have salvation. That is unchanging. That will not change. We are taking communion today just as the first believers did following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is unchanging. But also within this, we see the seriousness by which God takes our disobedience. He was not flipping about our disobedience, but for to deal with our sin, He dealt the ultimate cost, the body and blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. He wasn't flippant about it. He didn't just wave his hand and make it go away, but he entered into it personally and dealt with it. He was not flippant about it. And one of the key important things for us in our taking this communion is that we are not flippant about our sin. It doesn't mean we come to it and try to manage it but rather we take our sin to the one who has already dealt with it. The third thing, and I already highlighted this, is it shows the personal nature of God. In dealing with it, he wasn't flippant, but he dealt with it personally. And so this represents the fact that God has united himself with us. As we have of this, we're reminded of an unchanging God who has completely and utterly dealt with our sin, but also seeks for us to abide with Him, to know Him, to be be one with Him, for Him to be our food, and for us to completely and utterly trust in Him for our sake, not His. Because He is seeking to feed us. We can't feed Him. He is giving us what we need, not the other way around. So if you're a believer here today, we would invite you to come and partake of the elements and to be reminded as you take of them of who God is and what does it mean to be part of his covenant community. It doesn't mean we become flippant of sin, but it also doesn't mean we become afraid of our sin either. We take it to the unchanging God who has dealt with our sin in Jesus Christ. And so we're serious about it. We deal with it and we take it to Jesus Christ and we receive his love and his mercy and we allow it to change us so that we would trust him and what we would want in our hearts and our affections would be nothing but him. If you're not a believer, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted him as your savior, we would ask that you not partake of the, the communion today, but rather instead that you would receive Christ, that you would receive him as Lord and Savior, that he, trust that he has dealt with your sin in Jesus Christ, that he is one you can love and trust because he has first loved you. Why don't you do that today? So if the worship team would come, Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. We thank you for your love and for your mercy. And we just pray, Lord, in the midst of this, that by your grace, you would would take your message as you gave it to Saul through Samuel, that you would take the places in our lives where we haven't been taking obedience seriously and that we would throw it before your throne. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be afraid as we do so. But rather, we can give it to you knowing that you love us more than we could possibly imagine. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our relationship, that you would enable us by faith to trust you in all things. To trust that what you're doing is you're bringing about shalom. You're bringing about your goodness, even when we don't see it that we might surrender our entire lives before your goodness and in your throne. We pray this in Jesus' name.